the manufacturers, no matter who they are, to hold this inventory on their balance sheet is suicide for them. This dealer is selling electric vehicles with no inventory, a retail space the size of an Apple store and fixed pricing set by the manufacturer. But can this new model succeed in America? Today, I'm speaking with Matthew Haken, president of Prestige Collection Auto Group, a four-store New Jersey group competing in one of the most saturated markets in the country. We discuss how he took over his father's business and turned it into a number one Volvo store in the nation. Making $300 million in revenue from so-called throwaway brands, are we living through the great EV recession, and much more. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Well, before we get into the show, this episode is brought to you by Stream Companies. Stream Companies is the type of agency partner that easily becomes an extension of your team, fully engaged in the growth of your business. Their impressive team of auto industry and marketing experts dive in to understand your business needs, study the data, and provide full media strategies that leverage every channel that is right for your specific business and its goals. Stream is fully integrated, full service, and just celebrated 28 years of consecutive growth, a feat that is only possible through collaborative partnerships and exceptional customer service. From building your brand to leveraging their patented ad tech, Stream is driven to capture the attention of your shoppers and convert them into buyers. They work with some of the biggest and best dealerships in the country and serve all OEMs. To learn more, head to streamcompanies.com today where you can book a free advertising audit. Their team will dive deep into your online presence and digital advertising to uncover all your immediate opportunities for growth. This episode is also brought to you by CDK Global. CDK Global has been empowering nearly 15,000 dealers with the tools and technology they need to build deeper relationships with customers. Their team is keenly aware of the state of dealership technology. And while many vendors promise seamless experiences between your CRM, DMS, digital retail, and fixed ops, most of these bolt-on solutions tend to break workflows and cause more harm than good. That is why CDK has launched a new dealership experience platform. This new integrated software consists of everything you need to operate a dealership efficiently while delivering an unparalleled experience to your customers. Basically, everything working together, not separate, one system to run your dealership as opposed to 10. CDK developed it with an outside-in approach, listening to dealers every step of the way. You can learn more about CDK's dealership experience platform by visiting cdkglobal.com DXP or clicking the link in the show notes below. Matt Haken on the CDG podcast. Matt, welcome. Thank you so much. So, so excited to be here, especially after uh, your reveal at NADA. Well, well done. It was amazing. Really, really awesome. The execution was, was out of the park. So yeah, happy to be here. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for coming by. I know you were there in a the crowd. I did see you. So I really appreciate that. And I'm really excited about this. I think you know, when I when we were doing a research on you, your group, I think one of the most interesting parts here is the fact that you are a Polestar dealer. So I'm going to want to get into that, what that means, how that's different, why you even did that. I'm, I'm intrigued. Before we get into that, give us your background. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So uh, I've, I've been in auto retail now for 19 years. I got my briefcase the day after I graduated from the George Washington University in 2005. And my dad had one Volvo dealership, Prestige Volvo, on Route 10 in East Hanover. And I knew at 16 that this was the business I wanted to be in. My parents said, no, no, no. I said, yes, yes, yes. I had to be like undercover in college. Like I couldn't tell anyone I wanted to be a car dealer because my dad was afraid that all his managers would leave and they'd quit and he'd be alone. And But I knew this is what I wanted to do. And yeah, so I've been doing this now for uh, for 19 years full time. And 
have had up to five stores, uh, added four more stores. And I love the car business. I love the people. I love the energy. I love the competitiveness. What attracted you to this industry? Because when I was your age, I was still in my head like, I'm just doing this to help my father. This is a stepping stone, right? My mom wanted me to, you know, go corporate. I had applied for in college internships at JP Morgan. So why the auto industry? So, so you know, like like most dealers' sons or daughters, I grew up, you know, washing cars, plowing and, and shoveling snow on snow days. I grew up all around the, the dealership. And uh, it really wasn't until I, I was at, I was 16. I was invited to my first 20 group meeting. And a, a 20 group is a group of non-competitive 20 dealers that meet quarterly and go over a composite and benchmark ideas and best practices. But my dad invited me. He gave me a composite. And I was around this, this table with these bigger-than-life personalities. And I, I just fell in love with, with these dealers. They were just, like, larger-than-life. And it was really that that said, you know, mom, dad, like, this is what I want to do. I just love the energy and I love their spirit. And my parents were like, absolutely not. You are not coming into the business. Go be a doctor, go be a lawyer. But no, this is not a business for you. So it was, it was the people. And I just got sucked in and I just, I wanted more. I wanted more. I love it. So tell us a little bit about your group today, right? How many stores do you have? How many cars a year do you sell? Service? Give, give us the overview. We have four locations. We're right outside of New York City. It's a super, super competitive environment. We do about 300 million in revenue, 6,000 retail new and used cars, but a pretty small, you know, flat organization. We have around 150 associates and I'm like extremely hands-on. When you come into one of our stores, chances are you're going to see me sitting right on the showroom floor. I'm doing this podcast in a back office right now, but I'm never in an office. I am literally right in the center of the dealership. And uh, you'll, you'll always see me there, you know, feeling the pulse and the action of the store. And when I took over, we were a small Volvo dealership. It was a great business, you know, sent me and my sisters to college, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. But really, didn't have an F&I department, didn't sell used cars. You know, it was a great business, but the, people just operated differently. And then when I came in and, you know, I, I learned a lot. I fell on my face a million times, but I said, hey, this is not rocket science. I want to I wanna run with this. And I was really, really fortunate that my, my dad kind of threw the keys at me and said, okay, you know, make what you could do. Give me a sense of your scale and your acquisitions throughout the years, right? Like, give us a little chronological timeline, because I want to ask you, I want to drill into some of your acquisitions and understand how you came about them and, and, and more questions. So 2005, I take over my dad's store. I had a, a rep that worked for, for Volvo at the time and said, you know, you guys are always going to be that consistent 40 car a month store. And so-and-so store is going to be the biggest store in the country. And that just like, that just got at me. And, you know, within two years, we, we became one of the b biggest Volvo stores in the country. And we've stayed there for the last 20 years. And we actually... Wait, you're the biggest Volvo store in the country today? Not number one, but we've been in the top five for at least the last 20 years. And there's been years that we've been number one and years that we've been number two. And now we have two Volvo locations. But con consistent, you know, and, and really how I grew was... 
when I took over the business in 2005, Ford owned Volvo cars. Volvo, you know, people thought Volvo was going to go out of business. People thought Volvo could have been like, like Saab. Like nobody knew anything about Volvo. Volvo was the best kept secret. You know, in every benchmark you ever saw, it was Lexus, the most profitable dealers, the be- best retention. But Volvo was really an, an incredible gem, you know, and we didn't have the best product, but there was a way to, to make a business there. And like I said, like, Many dealers, it was kind of one-dimensional. No F&I, no used cars. It was new cars. It was service. It was parts. And that got it done. And there's a lot of dealers out there today, and that's their that's their playbook. And one thing I love about the car dealership industry is there's not everybody has the same playbook. You know, some people are huge wholesale parts guys. Some guys want nothing to do with wholesale parts. There's a lot of way to make up that 5% margin, as, as one of your previous guests said, you know, it's a 5% business, but you can get there many different ways. So I come in in 2005. I have this little store. I, you know, I don't know anything. I was green as green could be. I had passion. I had energy. I, I really didn't know how to, to deal with people, you know, and it was, it was tough. It was tough. I had to build everything from scratch. I, there, I, I had a, a time early on where literally everybody left and went to one of my competitors and then three years, fast forward, we ended up buying that store and consolidating it and getting a lot oh, of them no. back. But, I mean, like, <laughs> you, you name it. But again, like, I was so blessed. Like, I learned from all these mistakes. Like, there's a lot of people that don't get the opportunity to, to learn. And because I didn't have any of these positions, I had to learn firsthand. Like, like there was no F&I manager. I had to be the F&I manager. There was no used car manager, so I had to be the used car manager. So... So it took me, you know, a year, two, three years. I went to NADA Dealer Academy and I wasn't in. Yeah. For anyone that doesn't know what that is, can you just give like a one sentence overview of what that is? Yeah. So basically NADA is our our big association and and one of the values and foundations is education. And there's many different ways you could get education. There's some short-term classes or on-demand classes, but the Dealer Candidate Academy is a full 18-month program where you go into each profit center. So you go into a new car module, an accounting module, a used car module, a parts module, a service module. And over time, you learn. It's a great university. And, and I, you know, my class wasn't a dealer. They, they Back in the day, they called it the dealer son class. I was with general managers, which that was really important to me. So these were people that have worked hard and their owner sent them and sponsored them to the school. So yeah, so went to Dealer Academy right away in 2005. So you mentioned a philosophy of running a dealership, which I think is interesting, right? The dealership business just comprised of all these mini businesses. And you're right, Daryl Cunningham, you know, CEO of Group One Automotive was on the podcast, 5% margin, right? It's razor thin margins, you do it well, you can obviously make lots of money and be very profitable and run a great business. What is your philosophy? You've scaled, you've acquired multiple stores over the years. Again, I do want to get into one of your latest acquisitions, Polestar. But before we get into that, what has been your operating philosophy? What do you think has led to your success? I think it comes down to the customers and going the extra mile. I mean, I was raised to every day pick up someone's car on your way to work. You know, drop off your car, let them borrow, take their car in for service. If everyone in the dealership does that, you have an, another 20 appointments a day. Like whatever a customer wants, we're going to deliver. So I was super, super focused on taking care of the customer. And 
I, I right away I said we're going to offer pickup and delivery, and this was in 2005. Nobody was picking up and dropping off cars. I want to give everybody loaners, regardless of where they bought the car. I mean, a lot of and a lot of this stuff is so common sense now. But back when I first got in the business in 2005, and it's not like ages ago, but like the, it was like the loaner police. Like if you didn't buy your car from us, we're not giving you a loaner. And I'm like. That's insane. Like parts and services, 80% margin. Why are we not giving everybody a loaner? Why are we not offering to pick up and deliver for everyone? And, you know, I just, I went the extra mile for the customer. So that was, that was number one. And, and we'll talk about later, like, you know, my next one acquisition, which was Fisker, but that was short lived. But my first acquisition was a Kia store and Kia as hot as could be right now. And we could talk, you know, I don't have Kia anymore, but, you know, I always believed in going the extra mile. And that was at the time that was so anti-Kia that I wasn't a great Kia dealer because I wanted to go the extra mile for everyone. But yeah, but, but without a doubt, that's my that was my number one philosophy is is deliver excellence for the customer. Explain that deeper. So why did you get rid of Kia? So let's see. So I start off with Volvo and through 2008, it was a really tough time for a lot of people. And I was rocking. I was selling 100 Volvos a month, which was unheard of. Nobody was doing that. We were super profitable because we were lean and mean, and I was the guy running the entire show. So make it out of 2008, try to acquire another Volvo dealership. I get close. The deal blows up, and the broker looks at me and says, listen, he should have taken that deal, but there's a Kia store right up the block. It's a great starter store. Why don't you try Kia? And so I, I jumped on it. So I, I found the deal through a broker and it wasn't a lot of money. And, you know, I could get traditional financing through a bank. And Kia welcomed me with open arms saying, okay, this kid, and I was 30 at the time, this kid, he's selling over 100 Volvos a month. He's killing with Volvo. I mean, he's going to be the next, you know, great thing with Kia. And he's going to sell 200 Kias a month. And yeah, and I, I really, I was not successful. I fell on my face and Kia was a really... I love this because I think that there's just like a, we always hear about these acquisitions, these success stories. I feel like there's a lack of vulnerability. Yeah, no, I mean, it comes down to people. And, you know, I went, I had dreams to grow and I had a super successful Volvo store. And then I tried to scale that and I didn't have a bench. I was a one-man show at the time. I didn't have great people. I couldn't divide myself in two places at the time when it was really important that I was in both places and, and the face of the store. And at the end of the day, it comes down to people because there are stores out there that kill it and they kill it because of the team and the bench. And that's another thing that I love about the car business. It really, at the end of the day, you know, the brands that we represent, they're cyclical. They have good times, they have bad times. But if you have a great team of people, they'll 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 be successful no matter what brand you're selling. And I, I that was without a doubt my biggest mistake with that store. What do you think since then? Again, you've clearly been successful and there, you know, I'm gonna have to assume you've had lots of learnings, but what do you think has changed the most in your business and the way you operate over the last decade to run today multiple stores? and do it successfully, what has changed? Have you just been more focused on the people you recruit or has it been operating philosophy? What is it? I think the entire, my my management team, my associates, we've kind of grown together. 
most people started with me when I started in the business and started on the ground floor. And I had to really trust them and train them and coach them and learn how to let people be successful. And that's the, that's the only way to do it. You know, I can't be everywhere. It's impossible. And for me, it was really just getting the absolute best people and let, let them flourish and, and let them develop. And I'm, I'm super proud, you know, uh, my flagship store, the store that my dad started. I mean, right now we have, we have a flight organizations. We have centralized accounting. That's where our office is. Everything flows through that store. But I mean, I have two women that, that run that store. That's one started as a sales receptionist, one started as a service receptionist. And they're strong. They're, they're fantastic. And they're not perfect, but they've grown with, grown with me and they do an amazing job. And then I have really one person who's like my fixed ops director, operations manager. And he's really the only person that is still with me that started from before I was in the business a few years before. And so we really have a, a diverse group of tenured, young, female, male. It's a pretty diverse group. But again, like I learned that I'm not going to be successful without the people. That is, we are in the people business, you know, and that's, that's my number one role. Tell us a little bit about your economics, you know, across your group. So what are you seeing right now in terms of demand overall from consumers? How is business right now for you, generally speaking? We have a lot of inventory. And I know every brand is different, but the brands I represent, we have a lot of inventory. What are those brands again? Give us a run so of all the brands. two Volvo stores, a Lincoln store, and Polestar. So we have a lot of inventory. We have a lot of exposure to EV. You know, there's still some manufacturers that are still, you know, have that balance of supply and demand. We have been back to volume, thinner margins, lots of inventory. And we've been that way for probably the last year. So what that revert to is we're back to pre-COVID 2019 business. To that extent? A hundred percent. And we've been there for, I would say, most of last year. Most of last year was 2019 pre-COVID. And I see that, I see that going well into 24. Yeah. And I think you are a bit of an anomaly because you mentioned you are very exposed to EVs with your brands. So I think yeah, you're, I don't want to say an anomaly, but it's definitely impacting you more than might be impacting the average or other, other dealers. Tell me more about in terms of margins, what has happened to your margins over the last year? What were they at? What are they at now on an average basis? Being right outside New York City, it's a very, very competitive pocket. Big volume, some of the biggest volume in the country. And again, so our margins have always been super competitive on the new car side of things. There's lots of dealers everywhere. I mean, you could get to about a dozen uh, competing Volvo dealerships in about a 15-minute drive. Then in our market, it's, it's a market that's, that's heavily inundated with third-party brokers. So again, it's just a hyper-competitive market outside of New York City. So those new car margins have always been competitive. I mean, we live... What are they, though? What are the margins on those new cars? I would say they're almost nothing. Almost nothing. And, and that's just the business that we've always always signed up for. You know, we had, a, we had a, an amazing bubble from 2022 where our margins were greater than they've ever been on the new car side. But I would say in, in tri-state, you know, they've always been close to absolutely nothing. 
on your on your new car side, where would you say most of your profit right now is coming from? I mean, it it comes from F and I. Comes from it, New Jersey still has a healthy dock fee. Those are the margins, you know. And again, it's a, it's a game of volume and units in operation. Well, you mentioned Fisker. I didn't even know about that, by the way. I want to transition to that, right? First of all, why Polestar? Where did this come from? What led you to wake up one day and say, I want to be a Polestar dealer? Polestar, you know, it's, it's a sister company in Volvo Cars. They're separate, separate publicly listed companies, but they are uh, a sister company. So when Polestar went to market, and this was super controversial, they only wanted Volvo dealers. So we all raised our hand, all the Volvo dealers, most of them, and said, pick me. And it was, you know, it was like an America's Got Talent competition. And for me, you know, I just wanted the opportunity to build something from the ground floor. I wanted to be that that person who said, okay, I got involved day one. This company was nothing and I built it up into something special. And so, of course, yeah, I, I raised my hand. I said, I want to do this. And Polestar came to market and it was supposed to be this new way to, to buy a car. Uh, I don't want to sound like Saturn or any of these other defunct companies, but, you know, they wanted to really come up with a with a, a hybrid, you know, agency model that fit, fit the U.S. market. And I want to be a part of it, you know, and again, you know, I am competing with, you know, major public companies, big dealer groups, private equity. For me to grow, I need opportunities like this. I need throwaway brands. And I say that because, you know, I've spoken to so many dealers and they're like, I'll call you when I have a throwaway. And what they call throwaways, you know, they acquire a, a big group of stores and they're like, all right, we, we really want these eight. And these two we're going to get rid of. So they're, they're throwaway brands. So I don't mind. Like, I know I, you know, that's how I'm going to have to make it. I'm a Volvo dealer. I'm a Lincoln dealer. I'm a Polestar dealer. These, for a lot of people, are throwaway brands. And that's how I'm going to have to grow and compete with the big guys. So for me to get Polestar on the ground floor, uh, it, you know, it was a dream come true for me. I love that term, throwaway brand, because it's such a good way. Look, the way I see it, throw away or not, right? The market has an opportunity and you're simply capitalizing on that opportunity. I think that you're just playing it smart, frankly, because you don't have private equity backing you. You don't have, you know, that kind of crazy capital or, you know, the super prestigious public dealer group, whatever it may be. And so this is an opportunity that you can take advantage of. A hundred percent. And yeah, and I didn't, I didn't coin that term literally. Like I've been told that throwaway by multiple dealers who I reach out to when I'm looking for an, for an acquisition. When you say agency model, right? What does that really mean? I think so. Like agency, when, when I hear agency and, you know, you read the headlines in, in Europe and Australia, how they've terminated all these, uh, all these auto dealers, franchise agreements, and they've, they've signed new agency agreements. But I think the tenants of agency in the U S are really the dealers are not stocking units fantasy land, but that's one of the tenants of an agency that the dealers don't stock units. I think another tenant is negotiation free. Also, I think fantasy land. And I would say like another tenant is probably, you know, non-traditional dealership footprints. So for example, we opened a Polestar in the Short Hills Mall. So we are in a mall. So I, I think there's 
there's probably more tenants to what an agency is, but I think those are kind of three main tenants. When I put my dealer hat on, it also makes me think less margin because by having no inventory negotiation free, kind of an omni-channel online, offline experience, they could pay us less margin. And I can tell you the pros and cons of, of all this stuff and what's fantasy land and what's real. Yeah, well, tell us more about that. When you say fantasy land, isn't this the business that you're currently operating? Yeah, it is. But again, like, so I've been now operating out of the mall, a mall for three years. And I've seen the good, the bad, the ugly. And it's it really is a, a different model than what we're used to or, or, or what I'm used to as a car dealer. I mean, to me, the, the mall is media and awareness, and it's like operating at a, a car show. There's a lot of traffic. But again, these people are not there with their hat on to buy a car. They're there to get information and get brand exposure, which is which is fantastic. But by not stocking any inventory, it's presented a ton of challenges. First of all, you know, customers aren't brand local, uh, brand loyal to their to their their local dealership because at the end of the day, they would leave multiple deposits at multiple spaces within multiple states. And they would go with whoever got them the car first, or they'd look for a car with a certain feature and who could get them that feature faster. So like not stocking cars, although it's our biggest expense, especially now with rates. I mean, our floor plan bills are crazy. It's, I I just, I don't know if, if the U S consumer is there yet. And based on my experience, they're not like they, they want instant gratification. They want the car on the ground during COVID. When there was no inventory and people ordering cars, it was different. But now when supplies back, you know, most people don't want to wait. And so that was a major learning. And then again, like we're in the people business. Okay. So attracting professional automotive executives that 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 are in these car dealerships to the mall space is extremely, extremely challenging because working at a mall is seven days a week and it's long hours and it's it's tough. It, it's it's really tough. So we like, you know, getting the best people, definitely a major challenge. And beca- being negotiation free is another major, major challenge, especially when you're competing with, you know, Tesla and they're making these price changes dynamically on the spot. And you're dealing with, you know, all these now traditional OEMs that are, that are inundated with EVs. And they, they have to move these cars and they'll take a huge loss just to get get the cars off their floor plan because there's so many more coming behind it. So, yeah, it's, it definitely had its unique challenges. Sounds like it, but very interesting. Tell me more about just from an economic perspective, right? How are you making money with the fact that inventory is not on your balance sheet? You don't have you can't negotiate. We haven't even touched on service, right? And not having a service department or a postar service department. Tell me, how are you making money here? So I, I when we when we first opened up, we were rocking, totally rocking. Woke up in the morning, we'd have the orders, we'd be selling cars. We thought we were, you know, God's greatest gift. You know, we thought this. And what were price. you selling? We were selling probably 60, 60 to 70 a month. And and half half the orders were just coming in online. It was amazing. But it was a very, very unique time in the EV space. First of all, nobody had any inventory, ICE or EV. 
Yeah, what year? 21, 2021 we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. This Pre-Inflation Reduction Act. So the tax incentives were super generous to EV. And the EV consumer at that time, these people were so sophisticated, okay, that literally they had Reddit groups of all the inventory, what space had the inventory, what the dock fees were, and they knew all the OEMs and their incentives. So these were literally professional EV flippers. I had customers coming in that knew that, okay, I was going to go and get the Chevy Bolt and and Bolt was going to give me a free home charger plus installation. Then I was going to take that Bolt and I was going to trade it into Pulsar. And Pulsar was going to give me more than I paid for this. And I was going to cash out that. And then I was going to take the Pulsar. And then I would flip that into a Kia or a Hyundai. I mean, they were literally trading the $7,500 credit because you got it whether you leased it or you bought it. And it was unlimited. And they were using it to flip cars. They were so sophisticated. They, they were so much more well-prepared than the average dealer or OEM. They knew everything. So it was a totally different time. And they knew that, you know, as time was going on, the the use values were just going up and up and up. And they were just flipping and flipping and flipping and flipping. And it was like, it was an amazing time. It was a once in a lifetime, like time to be around. And, you know, when I was in the business, one of my mentors said, Matt, I feel so bad for you. You know, you're just never going to experience the good times like we experienced it off and like we we just lived through an incredible time and and these buyers were just so sophisticated and then you know the and wait and so at that time when you're selling like 60 70 a month it's market's hot how much are you making per car on a Polestar at that time so i would say we were making we were making about you know i would say three to five thousand dollars a car which at the time because you know it, it was through i call carmageddon that was below average at the time below average but Looking at pre-COVID numbers, we were like, we of were, course, were of course, phenomenal. But again, yes. you know, we're looking at it as we're not stocking inventory. We don't have easy the sales done online. Sale, heavy. We don't have these heavy hitter people. You know, the people that we were hiring were coming over from the Peloton store, the Apple store. <laughs> I'll tell you all about my findings with them because dealers stay up at night saying, "How can I get these Apple people? How can I get these Peloton people?" and they're great, but as far as like going the extra mile and that long-term relationship, they, they have a lot to learn. Fast forward out to today, what do the margins look like on a Polestar? So today, I mean, the EV market is just so, so competitive. And, you know, there, there's people that will tell you, like, I don't want an EV, but I'll tell you firsthand, when there's a value proposition, they don't care if it's ICE or EV, they'll, they'll roll that car. They'll 100% get that car. And if, so, the, and if, the, price, and if the price is right. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, that's why I think, you know, a lot of these manufacturers are backtracking on their EV aspirations because they know this, but when they put the math to what they need to where these cars really need to be, it doesn't make sense, you know, and, and Pulsars are amazing cars. And, and I, I, I believe that Pulsar has a bright future, but we're just at this point right now where it is like, it's like the great recession of EVs right now. It is, it's really, really tough. It's really competitive. And, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to sell as many as we can, but we have to give them away like, like, uh, like everyone else. We have to give and them away. To does them. that mean like, does that mean break even a thousand dollars a car right now, lose it, lose per car? Like, what are you really looking at and how sustainable is it? Well, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sustainable when we get more product and we have a full suite of product. And then we actually, you know, start to sell used cars and, 
and because again, like it, what, regardless of the brand, okay, if you get an open point and it's a startup, okay, you don't have units in operation, you don't have service, you're looking at that open point as okay, I'm going to sell used cars, I'm going to buy cars from the public, I'm going to sell used cars, I'm going to service those cars internally. That's how I'm going to make it. Nobody signs up for an open point and says. I'm going to put the key in the door and the customer's going to run in. Like we, we have to rely on other profit centers for that. But, you know, as, as, as Pulsar gets more mature, we're waiting for two new products as they figure out where they want us as far as destinations. Yeah. I think it's going to be sustainable. I think we're just at a very, a very challenging point right now. It, it, it's challenging. And, and my philosophy is, you know, if the cars are coming and the cars are built and they're sitting on your floor plan as a new car, you have to, yeah, they have to go away. So if you have to take a loss on them, take a loss on them. You know, if that customer is going to come back to you, if they have a trade in, if they're going to service with you, if you're going to build a relationship with them, you have to, you have to do what you have to do to move, to move a new car. Got it. So on a net basis right now, would you say like, is your pole store store profitable? It is, it is not profitable. So it's tough out there for EVs. Now, in terms of, you mentioned used and you mentioned used and you mentioned service. Are these considerations right now for Polestar specifically? Is that a thing or are you servicing at your other stores? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So right now we are authorized to service at one of our Volvo locations. So we have, we have, we have Polestar technicians that are certified Polestar technicians and they have their own separate computer system. But yeah, we service it through a through a Volvo location. But again, it stands on its own. We look at a PL for Pulsar. We look at what they bring in service and parts grows every month. And the service business is not bad. You know, we have units in operation and you know, the EVs are all they're in a lot of rental fleets. And because there's such limited spaces, we get cars coming in from all over, all over. So we'll we'll take the service. It's good. Why are you bullish on the brand? Given the headwinds for EVs and specifically Polestar, again, being more of like a up-and-comer brand, not being the market leader like a Tesla, what, what, what keeps you bullish on this brand? Well, first of all, I, you, I put Tesla in a different bucket. Like, and I'm, I would never, I'm never going to knock Tesla, the product, Elon. Like, you put them in a different bucket. Like, everybody, it's everybody else and it's Tesla. So the one thing is, I, I believe in Polestar's philosophy. I mean, Polestar is not direct to consumer. There's a dealer network. They believe in the dealers. They know dealers know how to how to sell cars. And, you know, there's not a dealer network with Lucid. There's not a dealer network with Rivian. Now companies like VinFast and Fisker are out there trying to sign up dealers because they know that model works. And, and I believe in that model. And that's a, a cash flow positive model for them. But I, I believe it, I've seen the product. The product's amazing. And we're selling products and we're putting it on the road. And the customers that are interacting with the products, they love it. They love the car. They love the quality. And it's 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 going to be, a, a you know, an interesting journey. But I'm confident in in the Volvo brand and the parent company, Geely, that they're going to keep investing. Do you think that this agency model, quote unquote, do you think it's going to go away? Do you think there's a future for it in the U.S.? In the U.S., no, I'm not a believer in the U.S. No. But I'm saying with respect to what you're doing with Polestar, does that stick around or does that end up transforming into an actual dealership? I think it's going to have to change, okay? The, the main reason is like the, the economics. You know, the manufacturers, no matter who they are, 
to hold this inventory on their balance sheet is is just a suicide for them. Nothing happens when they're holding these cars on their balance sheet and they're sitting at the port and they're paying interest on it. I mean, if you think about it, the 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 relationship with the manufacturer and the dealer is the greatest relationship on the planet. You know, they sell the cars to us. We pay them full price, negotiation free before these cars even get loaded on the truck. Okay. Then they load them on the truck. They drop them off at our dealership. We sell them for thousands less than what we paid for them. And then we hope to get that difference back. Those are rebates, incentives. We hope to get them back within 60, 90 days. And half the dealers don't even know how to apply for these incentives. So they don't even get them back. And we fund everything for them. You know, as long as they have inventory, when they need advertising, when they need help, they pick up the phone and say, hey, I need you to take an extra few cars. We, we got to write the check for, for the sponsorship of the football team or the, the professional hockey team. I mean, they, they, have the greatest, they have the greatest business on the planet. And I just don't think they have the fortitude to, to hold these cars on, on their balance sheet. And then, you know, I don't think they have the ability to change pricing dynamically or, or want to change pricing dynamically like, like Tesla does. You know, just think about how many customers they, they would piss off if everything was negotiation free and then the next day they go and they just, you know, change the price by a couple thousand dollars. And then this neighbor paid this and this guy paid this, like put it on us, put it on the local experts. And I think it's, it's a great model for them. And I just, I think they're, they're going to embrace it now more than ever. You know, you said that. And I think what comes to my mind is when times are good, everyone gets greedy. And the manufacturers, because I think if a consumer was listening to this, they would say, what do you mean you're losing on these cars? You're, you know, there have been $15,000 markups for the last couple of years. And while that's true, right, you know, there's also been the opposite now we're seeing or, or historically, right, where, where the new car was actually, you know, a loser for most dealers. Needless to say, yes, it's true that, you know, when supply is constrained, of course, there the were markups. But here's the thing, right? Manufacturers saw that times were good. And suddenly the agency model looks very attractive for a manufacturer because, hey, I can earn all that additional profit that the dealer is now earning on the sale. When times are not so good, suddenly it's not as attractive to retain that inventory and keep it on your balance sheet. Because just like the pendulum swings up, it swings back down. And again, like, and that's, you know, car dealers, we've we've been there, we've done that, you know, we're survivors. And you know, at the end of the day, so much as they have bailed us out of tough times, we're, we're always right there to help them when they call, you know, and that's, that's how you have to do business today. The interesting part is that I think it was, this was on my podcast with Alan Haig, but he mentioned that even when there were, you know, auto manufacturers going bankrupt in 08, 09 and the whole Chrysler stuff, no dealer went out of business at that time. No Chrysler dealer, at least if I remember, if I remember this correctly from my podcast with Alan A, which is fascinating when you think about it, just how the businesses are in a way like insulated from each other. And it really, I mean, like you said, it, it's completely two separate operations selling to each other. All right. So I was at NADA uh, as we all were, you know, a week ago, and I heard a good question that I really loved. And the question, I want to ask you this question, but Today, do you consider yourself a new car dealer that happens to sell used cars or a used car dealer that happens to sell new cars? Specifically, I'm asking that with where you think we're heading into the next year in terms of market conditions. 
listen, I, I am a new car dealer that sells used cars, but I, I love used cars. Uh, there, there are new car dealers that don't sell used cars, but I, I, I think that's a major opportunity. And I've always, I've always wanted like the manufacturers to just take some money and invest in their used car business, especially as like you're, you're seeing a major consolidation right now in these used car independents. And I, I've just had this philosophy, like those independents and I, I, like they have survived and built their businesses on our rejects. Okay. And I, I mean this with respect. hundred percent. Not a hundred percent. They have taken, we've taken our lease portfolios and our dealers don't want them. So then they take them and they sell them at auction and they get more money than they would get if they sold them to us. And like, these are our cars that we rejected and we created all this value, whether it's, it's fantasy value or paper value, but like we control that supply chain and you know, I just think it's crazy. I mean, I, I love used cars. It's like the first area of the business I tackled when I first came to the business was, all right, we got to start selling used cars. And then everything, you know, starts from a used car sale. So you you sell used cars, your service and parts department grows. You finally have F&I managers that are lining up, dying to, dying to work for you because they want an opportunity to, to to sell F&I on a used car. I mean, nothing stops. You make more trade-ins. Your look-to-book goes up. I mean, so like our dealerships, this this doesn't work without used cars. So yeah, there's just, there's so much opportunity. And I, and I think more of that is going to fall on our shoulders as you see more consolidation with the, the used car independence. So even me as a used car dealer, right? Knowing you have the right car for your market, it's everything. I think the reason I asked you that is because, again, you just mentioned that on a net basis at Polestar, you're losing money right now. And we know that there's margin compression on the new car side. We know that it's going to continue accelerating as supply continues growing across major brands. And so what are just the overall steps that you're taking to insulate yourself into this next year? Clearly, used cars is a big driver here. But can you just give us some specifics? Like, What are you focused on for the next year? I, I think I said this in the beginning. I mean, this year, more than ever, I need to make sure I have the absolute right people in every spot in our dealerships. I mean, so when when times are easy, like you don't have to worry about your people because anyone could do it. But but drill down on that. Like I want to know from a profit center perspective, how are you looking at your business today? Again, like Polestar is a little unique because I'm I'm kind of handcuffed. I can't leave the mall. I have to get I I have to be in the mall. So I, I have to maximize that media. And again, with Polestar, I can't retail used cars out of the mall. Okay, so Polestar is it's, I, I'm kind of handcuffed with Polestar, and I don't I don't know how how you want to share this, but it's like I can't take unique steps at Polestar. I in, until they say, Matt, and I, I, I don't know if you want to share this, but until they say, okay, Matt, the mall's media, we're going to get, we're going to get a group of product specialists just to handle the mall. We'll pay for it like a mobile billboard. And you could have a traditional dealership where I could line up EVs galore. Cause I love buying UCVs. You know, there's some dealers that won't touch them. I love UCVs and make it an EV use super center. I mean, that would be a dream of mine. And we would we would make money and we would lose money in the new cars, but we'd be a buying center and a retail outlet for used EVs. And that would work. But right now the setup is, I'm, I'm kind of hand, handcuffed. 
handcuffed. And then I, what about in Volvo? Yeah, on the Volvo world. So again, we're always, always super, super focused on, on used cars. And we're just trying to be smarter. You know, I, from my philosophy is really 30 days is the new 60 days. So we have to turn that inventory every 30 days. We have to, have to, have to minimize our, the cars that we're going to lose on and get rid of the cars that are loser cars. I mean, that's really our philosophy. And then again, uh, for me, it's all about parts and service. I'm building a, uh, an entire new service center for Volvo, Lincoln, and we're, we're able to service Fords and do Ford warranty service, warranty uh, work for Fords. And that's my, that's my baby. We're trying to get open any day now. But again, like that's my focus. Very cool. What's next for Prestige Group? Are you looking for at more acquisitions? What do you have in mind? So I'm always looking for acquisitions, but again, I want to maximize what we have. We have such a great opportunity. And right now, in, in for us, it's, it's these challenging times. Like that's when you get really lean and really good and really, really polished and, and develop your people. And we have a lot on our plate. Volvo's rocking. They have some new product coming out this year. They're growing in service and parts. So, you know, I'm definitely laser focused on just improving what we have now. And we'll see what happens down the line. I love to hear it. Do you think you're going to get your kids into the business? <laughs> That's a great question. So I have four kids, 11, nine, five, and a year and a half. And I would love it. I love it. My five-year-old son is just a car nut. He loves, loves, loves cars. Yeah, knows every brand, you know, gets just, he's a car guy. Uh, but I would love it. I mean, listen, I I love, this is, this is my passion and it's fun and I love everything about the car business. Awesome. I absolutely love that. Matt, it's been really, really interesting. I love the Polestar Insight. We haven't, I haven't had a discussion like this on the podcast yet, so it's super, super interesting. I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, we'll put links to your, to your dealer group at the bottom. If anyone wants to check it out, visit it. You've been super transparent with us, so I'm sure people will appreciate it. I definitely appreciate it. So anything else on your mind before we wrap up? No, thank you. I just, I love what you're doing. I wrote this privately, but I will I'll say here, like you are definitely the voice of the dealer right now. And what's amazing is like the previous voices of the dealer were like self-appointed and you've been appointed by the people. And I think that's just so amazing. And I think it's awesome that you're, you're bridging the gap between dealers, vendors, and the public and uncovering what an amazing industry this is. So you'll motivate someone at home to say, Hey, I want to be a car dealer. When I get older, I want to work in the car business. So like, I really think it's amazing and I'll keep pushing your message as much as possible. You're the man. Appreciate you. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been super Thank fun. You. Appreciate it. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating, consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.